This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today we've got a very special guest on the podcast. His name is Azizullah Aziz. So he is a native of Afghanistan. He served the United States for 15 years as a JSOC, that's a Joint Special Operations Command, combat interpreter, facilitator, and cultural advisor. And he served side-by-side with Chad Robichaux on his eight JSOC deployments in Afghanistan. Guys, we just talked to Chad Robichaux earlier this week to talk about everything that's gone on with Aziz. Obviously, the crazy situation that happened in Afghanistan. And then, you know, obviously, if you read the book and even go to that interview that we did earlier this week, Chad credits Aziz with saving his life on multiple occasions. In the book, he actually elucidates three of those. And he's the Aziz that's the main subject matter of the new book, Saving Aziz, How the Mission to Help One Became a Calling to Rescue Thousands from the Taliban. So I just want to read this quick thing from the dedication section of the book here, because I think it's you know applicable to what we're going to be talking about today. To the brave Afghan allies who fought courageously alongside us for 20 years, we will never forget the sacrifices you all made for the free Afghanistan and or for a free Afghanistan and for security around the world. Your sacrifices and dedicated service have earned each of you the right for an opportunity to live free in America. And I am sorry our government has failed you through a broken system. We will never forget you. And so obviously there's a whole lot of things that go into even just that one quick statement. But with a guy like Aziz, in this interview, we talk about what was it like growing up in Afghanistan. And for any of you guys out there that are struggling with being thankful, right, thankful for the stuff you have, for where you live, make sure you pay really close attention to the first five or 10 minutes of our interview today, because he goes into a lot of detail about what it was like growing up in, up in Afghanistan. And I'm going to assume it wasn't the same as your upbringing, but then we get into a lot of other things. We get into, you know, why he learned English, you know, what his thoughts were about the United States. Was he really even aware of the United States growing up? What he thought when the United States military invaded Afghanistan after the, the nine 11 attacks to try and take out the Taliban and Al Qaeda, you know, I asked him whether or not he ever considered joining a terrorist organization. Because some people in Afghanistan immediately were going to help the Americans and others were like, well, I'm going to join these guys because, you know, they'll keep me safe and, you know, they'll eventually outlast the Americans. So we get into that. We got into, you know, the, the SIV process he went through to try to get to America. But then he spends a lot of time describing just how he was able to get out of Afghanistan. Because it wasn't just a matter of like calling his buddy Chad and being like, oh, you're going to pick me up at this place. OK, well, we'll just meet you there. Every time he tried to escape Afghanistan. The Taliban basically got in his way, and it was a miracle that the Taliban didn't kill him multiple times as he was trying to escape with his family. And we go into all that detail here, but then at the end, you know, we we go through um, obviously the evacuation, him coming to the United States, but he's here with his immediate family, but he left his parents, his brothers, his sister, his you know nieces and nephews behind in Afghanistan. And, you know, we talk through what that's like because they just couldn't find a way to get everybody out. But obviously the Taliban knows that that is Aziz's family and the Taliban, again, they're trying to pitch you with this idea of the Biden administration that this is some reformed Taliban, like, oh, they wear suits and ties. So they're not chopping off people's heads and rolling them down the sidewalk. And so it's just a little bit of a, of a different scenario. But we, we spend just so much time. And as I'm listening to this, he goes off and starts describing these things. And just I want to challenge you during this interview because he speaks tremendous English. He's very engaging in the things that he's saying. But just think about how different his mindset has to be now that he's in America. For most of you listening to this podcast, you've been in a Western country your entire life. You've never had to worry about walking through you know, a field and stepping on a landmine. Why, why you're playing as a child. You've never had to worry about somebody driving into your neighborhood on the, you know, on you know, motorbikes and then shooting their AK-47 in the air and then deciding on a whim whether or not they're going to kill you and then rape your family or rape your family first and then kill you. So that's the last memory that you have before they took your life, right? I mean, you've never had to reckon with that level of depravity and evil. And we do get into that. And at the end, I have him describe some of the things he saw just so we can really drive home what exactly we're dealing with when we're talking about groups like the Taliban. So I really, really enjoyed my time with Aziz. So without further ado, let's get into it. Azizullah Aziz, welcome to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam. Uh, Shitor Hasti. Khubastam. Wow, you're speaking good Persian. 
uh, I'm doing my absolute best. And I was ready for you to say Oob Hasti back. And I was going to say whom. So I'm like, I'm doing yeah. <laughs> my absolute best here. So uh, yeah. that's about the extent of, of my, what is that? Farsi? Did I, well, I don't even know what language I just said that in. Yes, it's Farsi, Persian. <laughs> okay, very good. Well, uh, that is what Chad told me to say because I, I literally text Chad about a day ago and I'm like, hey, man, I want to like catch him off guard with a greeting or something like that. And so uh, give it up to Chad Robichaux for that. But man, we're, we're so glad to have you on the show today. And we're going to be talking about a lot about your story and about your life. And, you know, certainly we'll get into the stuff that's in the book, Saving Aziz. Obviously, you are the Aziz that everyone's talking about. But I think one thing that would be a great place for us to start would be for you to set the tone for us like, what was it like growing up in Afghanistan? I only know what it was like growing up in Oklahoma in the middle of the United States of America. So just give us a, a general idea of what it was like growing up there. Well, thank you very much for having me. Uh, it's uh, my pleasure to meet you. And uh, uh, you really surprised me by speaking the <laughs> Persian. There you go. And, uh, uh, growing in Afghanistan uh, was full of hardship, difficulties, hunger, famine, not mer uh, very much uh, resources, very bad economical situations. Like I remember when I was a very young kid at my uh, seven or eight, we used to play in the Russian tanks, the Russian leftovers. I remember my uh, friends from the childhood that they stepped on the landmines and they were blowing up near to the village that we lived north of Kabul. There was a cemetery. So this cemetery was uh, full of uh, mines and the leftovers from the Mujahideen and the Russians. Uh, we were just kids. We had no idea what's coming to us if we step in this cemetery. We were running around playing uh, the, with, with an Afghan ball. Uh, throwing it into each other and hitting it with the stick. They call it uh, Tobdanda. It is pretty much same like cricket, mm. but that's a different version of it. So as we were running around and we were having fun and uh, a couple of my friends, uh, you know, they were in front and they ran. They thought that uh, to run away from us and we were behind them. And as soon as uh, they got faster and faster and you know, stepped on the landmines and they were blown off. They lost their legs, their hands. And finally, uh, after a few days, they were dead. So it was uh, full of uh, much difficulties. Uh, life was really challenging. Mm. Uh, we did not have electricity most of the time, like power. And, um, you know, uh, there was food shortages. There were no uh, education at that time because the country was in the civil war when I was born. It was the Russian occupation over there already for two years. They were there and the Mujahideens were fighting them every single uh, minute. There were bullets, rounds, mortar shells, RPGs flying in the air over our head. And by the pass of the time, it became part of the life. At first, we were scared, but then later on, it kind of, you know, became part of the life, and it, 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 we didn't care anymore about nothing. I remember one time when I came out of my house, I was going to the playground to play with the other kids. Uh, a big uh, uh, part of, like this much, uh, part of the rocket shell that came and uh, dropped on my head. But luckily that was cold. It was not hot or warm. Otherwise it would, uh, you know, go into my head. But, you know, I it scratched a little bit my head because uh, I didn't have enough hair on my head. And, uh, you know, it didn't bleed, but it scratched it a little bit. And uh, I remember one other evening that we were playing Walnuts, it's a walnut game that mm. the steel, when the walnuts grow on the trees, the kids go, they take it and then they play with each other to win walnuts from each other. Mm. We were playing this game. It was one of the afternoon that uh, an undirected RPG came and hit at the end of the street like uh, probably uh, 15 to 18 meters uh, in distance uh, between us and the other kids, and it just smashed a bunch of kids and turned them into flesh and blood. 
uh, at that time. And then uh, my father and the neighbors, they all came and they collected their meat and they put them in the you know white cloth and took them mm. to the cemetery to bury them. Every day, every minute, every hour, every month, it was full of, uh, you know, anxiety, frustration, uh, lots of uh, dangerous uh, situations. Like sometimes these Mujahideen groups, they were uh, uh, for power struggle. They were fighting between each other. They were uh, shooting rockets, RPG rockets. Uh, they were shooting PKMs, grenades. They didn't care about the civilians. And when uh, they were losing the battle between them, then they were uh, just going to the people's house and they were taking refugee among the people. And then the other side, the opposition side, you know, they were throwing um, ammunition, shooting guns and, you know, rockets or grenades, regardless of being curious about all those poor civilians that has nothing to do with the war or nothing to, to do with their parties. So uh, overall, it, it was very, very difficult and challenging uh, raising as a child in Afghanistan. I really appreciate you going into all that detail, Aziz. And I think one of the main reasons is because I literally dealt with none of that growing up. And almost everybody listening to this, this is an overwhelming majority American audience, we didn't grow up with anything even close to that. We may, that doesn't mean we didn't grow up without hardships, but that's just a different level, but that was just kind of normal life for you. So I'm also curious growing up, what were your thoughts on the United States of America? Because, you know, just because you live there doesn't mean that you are, or that you are not aware of America because uh, eventually you did learn English, obviously, because you speak it so well. And that, you know, bodes well as we, we, we move into talking about you becoming an interpreter later on in this conversation. But I guess, what did you think about the U S you know, what's the story behind you learning English? Uh, honestly, uh, the, at that time, there was not much news out in Afghanistan when I was a child about the United States because there was only one TV that started their program from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. And it was in the control of the government. They were mostly uh, broadcasting whatever they wanted to broadcast and whatever they want the people to know. Right. And uh, uh, on the other hand, uh, the, luckily we had the magazine, we had news that were uh, coming from the neighboring country like Pakistan, India and other countries, it, uh, they used those uh, for covering the fruits. So I was looking at these pictures, you know, seeing pictures of the Europe, United States, but I didn't know it's Europe or United States. And at that time, I did uh, not know English, but uh, the, the, uh, uh, literally there was a say uh, among all the families and the, 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 the people inside Kabul that in the future, if all these civil wars stops in Afghanistan and a good government come into existence in Afghanistan, there is a natural gas pipeline that is going to come from Turkmenistan to Afghanistan, from Afghanistan to Pakistan, Iran, India, and it's connecting the region. So anyone who those who should be able to speak English they will find a decent job and a decent uh, amount of salary working in this project. And there will be a big need for a lot of people. This was something that, you know, uh, something clicked in my mind that I, every day in every uh, elders meeting that I was going or, you know, families, they were talking between themselves. So I picked it up and I'm like, what's English? I, I became curious about English and, you know, I slowly start uh, looking around, there was no internet, no electricity, no laptop or desktop or smartphone. Even we didn't have those regular phones. At that time, they used those, uh, you know, the dialing phones that it has the numbers like one, two, three, up to nine and zero, uh, you, you know, the cable telephone. Yeah, right. Uh, but uh, even that one didn't work because there was no electricity, you know, that needed the electricity. I mean, 97% of the time there was no electricity. Only 3% of the time, you know, they had a very small amount of energy from the Surabi uh, a station of uh, east of Kabul that came a few a couple of hours and then ran out. 
so I went to these uh, cobbled stationeries, public stationeries, private stationeries, and a look around the books. I found these books that uh, they called it the self-learning English. So uh, when I opened it, it had the English uh, word. Then mm-hmm. in the bottom, it had the pronunciation of both on Pashto and Farsi on my own native languages. And then it had the translation. And then it had a little bit of explanation mm-hmm. of the sentence that in which uh, a case you can use it. Is it past tense? Is it you know present tense or future? In future, how you will use it? There were some grammatical structure describing how to use it. So I became really interested. I got one of these books and I kept studying it with myself and uh, not knowing about the United States, not knowing about the, you know, how enormous United States is and how, uh, you know, uh, it will help me and all the other people, those who should be able to speak English. We didn't have no idea about this, especially myself. So I was just thinking about the uh, the natural gas project and, you know, improving my English every day, practicing it, learning it. And, uh, you know, as I was walking in the streets, on the streets in the neighborhood, I was uh, having this book and reading it. All these children in the neighborhood, they noticed they're like, hey, Aziz, are you crazy? What are you talking about? Mm. This is not Pashto. This is not Farsi. Every day we see you, you have this book or that book. You're just, you know, talking with yourself. Tell us, what is this? I told them this is English language and this is international language, they call it. If you speak this and you travel to any part of the world, you will not have any difficulties during your travel. Then I explained about the natural gas project and the decent salary and, you know, the job and everything. And, uh, you know, all these people over by the pass of time, they became interested. At first, they made fun of me, but then they became interested. They're like, why don't you teach us? And uh, so I teach them voluntarily and I grew a little bit. Then I started charging them a fees. There you go. (laughs) Parents became so interested in that one as they saw that I taught them how to write ABC alphabets, you know, the capital letter, the small letters, and then continuously I was uh, giving them conversational sentences to speak with each other and their families became more and more interested and their parents came to me and they're like, hey, what are you doing? You're doing a good job. We are proud of you. You are the man. Please keep all the children from the village busy like this. It's very good and instead of playing walnut, this or that, just, you know, play. And then I borrowed some money from my older uncle and I rented like a few front shops in one of the apartments right across the street, the main street where I was living in the uh, 15 uh, district of Kabul. Uh, so I used those ones as classrooms and I didn't have money for buying chairs, tables or other uh, things that is required for the classroom. So what I did, I dig the ground and I made the mud with water. My father had a, a wooden uh, brick, uh, uh, what, what should I call it? Like there is a wooden box that you put the mud in it mm-hmm. and then you flip it over, it makes bricks for right. you from the mud. And I started doing that using my students and we continuously did that. Like in one day we made more than 200 bricks. and. You know, the sun hit it and it dry out and we brought the bricks, put it and we, then we made some more mud, you know, some slight mud to put a, a layer of mud, then a layer of bricks, then a layer of mud and made like those long chairs kind of thing so the students can sit so I can continue with the classroom lectures in all the classes. So this is how I started and I ended up uh, like uh, training about 800 students uh, the course of Aziz Private English Institute, they called it at that time. It became very famous in all Kabul. In most part of the Kabul, people came from all over to it. They paid like 50,000 Afghanis at that time for one month to study for one hour per day, except Fridays. And, uh, you know, I, and, and this, this uh, became an obligation for me, like on... Uh, because the students were asking more questions. They were challenging me. They were like, hey, teacher, how should I say this in English? How should I say that in English? 
or sometimes they were even finding some words from these newspaper that was used to cover the fruits. You know, they would pick a word and then they would bring it to me and they're like, hey, what's the meaning of this? Then I would take it from them. I would tell them that, hey, it's not time for this. Give me your words. I will bring the meanings tomorrow. Today, we are continuing with this lecture that you mm-hmm. see on the whiteboard. So because I had no answers and I didn't right. want to look bad and I didn't want to tell them that I don't know because then their heart will break. Then they will think that their teacher is lazy and they will not come to the course. So right. <laughs> I didn't right. want to cut their motivation. Right. Aziz the entrepreneur. I love that. Like you, you got after it, whether it's teaching English, making bricks, you, you got after it. Now, obviously a lot of things in your life and a lot of things for your entire family and really the entire country of Afghanistan changed in the early 2000s when the U.S. military invaded Afghanistan to take out the Taliban, to take out Al-Qaeda, really to, to take out any terrorists that they could find uh, that would be even tangentially you know, connected with 9-11 and the, the terrorist attacks here in the United States. And so I guess just briefly, what did you think when the United States military, this foreign force, the, you know, the greatest military force on the planet invaded your country. And then with that disease, I know that a lot of your countrymen did what you did and tried to help the Americans. But then there were other countrymen that that was their motivation to join a terrorist organization. So I guess, give me an idea from your perspective. Like, did you ever consider joining a terrorist organization? Because it's like, Hey, they're going to, they're going to give me money. They're going to give me food. Like, just take me through all that. Yes, I'm coming to that one. And uh, before that, uh, I need to finish this. Uh, uh, Actually, uh, what happened was when I trained about 800 students Mm -hmm. and uh, while doing that, the passion, the love, the respect, the desire and the wish I had for Afghanistan to, to grow as well, because we didn't have paved roads. We didn't have the all the governmental institutions were not. Uh, built and uh, there were no opportunities for the girls. I mean, you name it, there were many different uh, requirements for the human uh, beings in Afghanistan at that time that we didn't have access to. As I was looking in these magazines, like the European kids, the American kids, the other kids, that they're clean, they have very beautiful clothes, Mm. you know, they're all, they're looking sharp and new and educated. And I had this desire, but I was waiting for such an opportunity and I had this passion in my heart. I was born with it. I don't know that the, it, it, it is in my heart still. And even in the future, if I find uh, ever I find a, a opportunity, I will again do the same thing as I did in the past for Afghanistan. And uh, the thing is that, you know, I was really also bothered that why we are backward the neighbors are growing, the other countries are going every day. We are, you know, going back and back. So what happened was that one of the evenings when I was teaching English, the Taliban guys came behind the classroom and they tried to take me to the prison because it was an evening prayer time. And according to their uh, rules at that time, that all the shops needed to be closed during the prayer times and everyone was uh, supposed to go to the mosque and pray. So they caught me and they tried to hit me with this cable. I punched this Taliban guy on his nose and his nose started bleeding. I jumped from the second floor, ran away to the neighbor's house, and not knowing that this is also a Taliban's house, because <laughs> this lady, she called me, are you teacher Aziz? I said, yes. She's like, hey, my husband is also Taliban. Don't worry. <laughs> I will talk to him tonight and he will release you. I'm like, God, I didn't want this. However, I ended up, going to United Arab Emirates, abandoned the country, free the Taliban at that time, back in the 1990s. Uh, That was my first time that I fled the country because of the Taliban. And uh, I ended up working for a Christian family in United Arab Emirates because I had no visa, no passport, nothing. And uh, when I noticed the presence of the United States military in Afghanistan, for me, this was a God's miracle that I was waiting for such an opportunity to contribute my part for the country since my childhood. This was my desire. This was my hope. I did not even see that opportunity in my dreams at all. I, I didn't know that you know a country like United States with this much enormous and strong military would come to Afghanistan and you know help 
in many different parts of the, the building the country, enduring freedom, uh, human rights, children's rights, uh, education for all, peace, the right to vote, the right to speak freely, the right to have your own independence, all these many different things. Uh, this was in my heart and my mind, but I was looking for such an opportunity and God show me his miracle at that time by the presence of the United States military. So I called my dad and I told him, hey, dad, what should I do? What do you think? He's like, son, you did not learn all that English for no reason. There is a reason behind that. However you want to come back, you need to come back to Afghanistan. This is your time and you need to start uh, uh, putting your contribution to the country. So I went to one of the immigration police and I told them the story. They really liked me. And they're like, we are looking for all these many years that these people come to United Arab Emirates without visa and passport. How they are coming, who they bring them. So I pretty much give them all the information, right. the routes and everything. And they were so interested in hiring me uh, for working for them. But I told them, no, I have to go home. I need to get married because I was engaged at that time. My fiance is waiting for me, and then I will get a passport, then send me a visa, I will come with my wife at that time. They're like, okay, they did all the paperwork, they made me out pass and everything, they paid for all the plane tickets and sent me home. So I never got back there. I went to directly to the Kabul Military Training Center. I met with the U.S. Uh, Special Forces. There were hundreds of Afghan candidate interpreters waiting behind the Kabul military gate. Uh, and, you know, we waited uh, two, three days over there until my time came and I took the test. It was a military test. They were basically asking you some mil military terminologies and words like what's magazine, what's round, what's gun, you know, all these mm. different things. So uh, I was uh, out of those hundred uh, people. I was uh, the third guy who they called my name after they were announcing the results that who succeeded, who failed. So I got in, I worked for one year in uh, the Kabul Military Training Center for, uh, uh, you know, building the Afghan National Army. Uh, I was uh, used as a linguistic interpreter, Pashto, Dari, uh, classroom uh, explanations, ranges explanations, you know, through gun trainings, counter-assault, this and that. There was many things, sniper. So whatever they were teaching, as they were teaching, uh, because I was interpreting, the cadre of the United States was teaching, I was interpreting and translating, and you know, I was picking up. I was learning too. As the soldiers were learning, I was learning too, because I was observing and seeing. And finally... Uh, they saw the motivation and something inside me. My American bosses, they uh, promoted me, sent me to the U.S. Embassy, uh, Regional Security Office. There was another office, special project, the anti-terrorism assistance. I became the chief interpreter for over there. They, there was a project in there that they were training uh, bodyguards for the Afghan uh, president. Like at that time, there was President Karzai, then other president came. But overall, the aim was to train uh, security guards for the Afghan presidential palace. So whoever comes, those guards will protect and they will be detailed like advanced team, the dog team, the sniper team, the counter assault team, the motorcade team. I mean, there is many different kinds. They crashed some cars. They did all kinds of crazy things, you know. <laughs> yeah. So I was loving it. I was enjoying it. It was, for me, it was not only a job. I was seeing what that with the help of the United States military, USAID projects, private American projects in Afghanistan. Afghanistan was both uh, benefiting directly indirectly, uh, in long term and short, short term. Any project that was there, Afghanistan was benefiting from it. A lot of people found jobs that they did not have jobs before like me. 
you know, interpreters, drivers, bodyguards, watchmen, somebody working in the kitchen, somebody working somewhere else, somebody became a soldier, somebody became an officer, somebody became a teacher, somebody became a teacher assistant, business consultant, you know, you name it. I mean, jobs were created by the presence of the United States military in Afghanistan. And every man and woman that was working, they were working for the uh, from the deep of their heart, one, because Afghanistan and the Afghan people were benefiting and they were slowly uh, going, uh, moving forward for development so they could compete in the region, at least with their neighbors, that they were totally marginalized. They were totally moved to the edge by those cruel neighbors for almost, you know, four and a half decades now. So... I was enjoying this job and, uh, you know, uh, on one hand, I was seeing it as a God miracle. On other hand, I was seeing my people benefiting. Everyone was happy. The United States, uh, uh, you know, presence in Afghanistan helped the Afghan people that they exported uh, power or electricity from Uzbekistan into Afghanistan how much money was spent on that one that they installed these electricity metal pillars you know on the mountains and the deserts into 34 provinces of afghanistan uh you know it became almost like we had an afghanistan that had power for only two hours or less than two hours in the past Mm. so during the united states military presence they received the electricity or power for like almost, you know, 22 hours, 23 hours every, mm-hmm. you know, night and day. And uh, government institutions were built. A lot of hundreds of uh, private universities were established, opened and ready for men and children, women, children, boys and girls to continue and learn their educations. Computer institutes were brought. Medical institutes were brought from India, from Pakistan, from Iran, from uh, European countries, from Swiss, from American. The Afghan American University was uh, inaugurated and built, which I am one of their students also. I studied political science and public administration over there. I was at the very you know last uh, time of my uh, graduation. Only seven credits I needed to graduate. But then that 2016 uh, terroristic evil attack of Taliban happened on the American University, which, you know, I lost my teacher. I lost my classmates. At that seat that I was sitting, you know, if that day I was over there, they threw a grenade on my place. And that chair was blown up with a grenade. Like they threw it from downstairs the bad guys and the, the, the grenade came into the seat that I used to sit in that seat in that classroom. However, uh, I couldn't continue my education because of that, and uh, but still I contributed to most extent in building the country and many different aspects of uh, like the classroom translations, interpretations. Um, uh, I also worked as a social activist and uh, raising awareness for the people to take the advantage of the United States uh, presence in Afghanistan and build the country, you know, mm-hmm. forget what, 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 you know, you think about the religion or about the, you know, what, what the enemies are saying. These are our brothers. These are our friends. These are the best ally in the history of Afghanistan that God has gifted to us, work with them shoulder to shoulder. And, you know, the country is benefiting, the people is benefiting. The new century, the people will be all enlightened. And, you know, we will finally get out of this this power struggle, the, 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 you know, the killings, the tortures, the darkness. Overall, the darkness that there is darkness over the decades. Girls found access to colleges, universities, schools, and the, the girls were able to get driving licenses. 
Mm-hmm. Girls were able to walk without a male support, you know, go to the market street, do shopping, open up a business store. Like, I noticed girls, I was so happy and so enjoying it. And I was praying to, to the Lord and appreciating it every moment I walked in the cobbled street. Although there were some problems in the four provinces, like sometimes, you know, there were uh, suicide attacks from the bad guys. There were corruption was also there. Uh, we cannot close eyes on that one from the Afghan government. There right. were some corrupted uh, government employers, employments, and uh, you know, uh, employees actually. And um, there were a little bit of uh, difficulties and uh, problems, but in general, there was much more development, uh, progress and abundance of food and resources and everything. Well, so Aziz, I appreciate you getting into all that detail because that that was the stuff that we weren't getting in the news. Like we weren't hearing about those stories. We weren't hearing about anything. We might get a story from, you know, a veteran that comes back and is trying to explain it to people, but explaining it to somebody like you, like, or having someone like you explain it rather is very, very important because you give us the, you know, the view from the ground level. And obviously we, we already talked to, to Chad, you know, we released that episode and, you know, you were helping with Chad uh, be his interpreter for eight different deployments whenever he was in Afghanistan, you were helping the Americans. But at a certain point, um, the United States government and ran by the Biden administration decided that their time in Afghanistan was going to be coming to a close. Um, You knew that that was coming. You tried to go through the SIV uh, process to leave Afghanistan. Obviously, Chad described that in the book, Saving Aziz. You described in detail how almost impossible that was. It became apparent pretty quickly that it wasn't the SIV process that was going to get you out of Afghanistan, but that you were going to need to be rescued from Afghanistan. Now, I know that we're, we're skipping over a lot of things here because guys go buy the book, Saving Aziz. It is in the show notes. You can get all the detail. But I want to take you back to when you realize, okay, we've got to get out of here. We're going to get some support from Chad and his team and those types of things. But my understanding, Aziz, is that you tried to get out of Afghanistan several times. Okay, so this is before August of 2021, before the explosion at H. Kaya, you know, before all this other stuff. You had tried to get out several times, but each time you ran into Taliban resistance and it was going to be just not possible for you and your family to get out. So I, I guess... Take us through the the evacuation. Take us through how you got out and, and kind of all the things that led up to that. And I, I I guess I'm also curious, Aziz, did you give up hope at some point that you were ever going to get out? Did you just assume the Taliban was going to find you because they already know who you are and then that was going to be it for you? Yes. Uh, it was actually a very difficult and challenging time for me. At first, when President Biden announced the withdrawal of the troops from Afghanistan, I did not take it serious because I was really counting on the Afghan National Army, the NDS, the police, the border police that were equipped and trained very well by the United States military. They were given anything they needed, lots of ammunitions. And I, I knew some officers from the military because they all called me their teacher also because I, I was interpreter, but they respected me as a teacher. Mm. So uh, they were in contact with me. I asked them, they're like, you know, we have enough ammunition to fight for even four or five years. We have tanks, we have planes, we have guns, we have everything. Unfortunately, the government collapsed politically, the, 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 especially when President Ghani flee the country the Minister of Defense flee the country. So when the top and high management, when there is nobody to give that power spiritually to the soldiers, to the to the people who are subordinates, the subordinates kind of collapse. Like if there is no top man in the family, that those kids will not, you know, find their way to the future. However, I was really counting on that one, but I, I, I was not anticipating the, the immediate failure or collapse of the regime. Uh, uh, so I knew that uh, my heart broke that when President Biden announced and the, the withdrawal, but still, you know, on the other hand, I was praying and I was strong that uh, we still have the Afghan army. On the 15th of August, the government uh, collapsed 2021. And... Uh, Chad was trying to make a team to come to Afghanistan, uh, save me and my family. 
Chad, Daniel Stinson, Joe Robert, Sean Hyde, and uh, there are some other guys. Overall, it's like 12 men, one woman. This is a team to, that they were planning to come to save me. And uh, they were in contact with me. They were sending texts. They were making jokes. They exactly knew how I was suffering and uh, what situation I was. It was a total of hopelessness, disappointments, and I didn't see any uh, movement because since 2016, I have been waiting for my SIV application to be processed, yet it is in pending mode. Like last time when I emailed them, uh, they told me that, hey, we noticed that you are in the United States of America how did you get here? Your pro application is not even processed. Mm. Send me a document that shows that you are really in the United States. <laughs> uh, so I, I kind of, you know, I didn't even reply to them. I'm like, I don't care anymore. I'm here now. However, because uh, under the contract that I served, it was a classified contract. When you serve under the classified contract, you cannot have access to the contract number. On the other hand, it is needed to complete the formalities for the SIV program, they need a contract number. They need to be able to confirm with DOD and, you know, all those related branches to find out that if I'm the, the, the right guy or the appropriate guy or somebody else is just, you know, trying to use this opportunity. However, Chad and his guys and Dan, uh, they send me some GPS locations to try this gate on the 15th. Mm. Right before that, my wife had an appendix operation. Her wounds were all infected because of the lack of uh, good quality medicines, because of the lack of good doctors. You know, they did a very bad job and they were all infected and she was really hurting and crying. So I'm not sure if you have seen that crowd around the Kabul airport. As soon as the sec Secretary of State announced that they will take anyone who thinks their life is in danger from the Taliban, they will take it with them and bring them to the United States. Mm -hmm. So everyone stormed to the airport, you know, all the guys who are legitimate, all the guys who are not legitimate. But, you know, Afghanistan is a poor country. Everybody wanted to get out of there anyways because everybody wants to have a good future. So it was very difficult for, for the Marines that were inside the airport. That was very difficult for them to control everyone, to, you know, process everyone. They had to use all these guys from the zero unit guys that were trained by the CIA. On the, they made like a second, uh, second, uh, second uh, line of security uh, around the airport, and then the first line was uh, surrounded by the Taliban guys. So Taliban uh, zero unit guys, then Marines, then all the US CBP uh, and US consulate guys. And then Brits are there evacuating their own Australians, Canadians, Germans, Turks, any um, country that was involved uh, with the NATO in Afghanistan. So they were using that uh, airport to evacuate their own interpreters and allies from Afghanistan. It was a mess. It was a chaos. And every time they send me a GPS location, I try to make it. I pass the Taliban after a lot of shooting they do at me and my wife and my children. And, you know, I sneak in uh, under under in, in the middle of the people. And I pass the Taliban checkpoints with a lot of difficulties and accepting a lot of risk. I mean, the risk that to, to the point that they could shot me right straight in my forehead. But God was somehow protecting me and my children. And I didn't know how he did it. So nervousness and anxiety, weak, you know, low energy and red eyes, no sleep. Again, you know, we cannot make it. As soon as we pass the Taliban, we face the zero unit guys. They shoot at me. They're, they're trying to spread the crowd and make the road clear for their own guys to bring their own guys to the airport. And I'm trying to show my documents. I cannot show them because in the back that there is Taliban, if they see the documents with me, they will shoot me at that spot. And I'm trying to talk to these zero unit guys from far distance. They are not listening. They're like, no, I go. I don't know you. Then once, after a few hours, I try, I pass the zero unit guys checkpoint 
I make it to the Marines checkpoint. The Marines are the first inner circle inside the airport that's providing security for the, you know, uh, CBP, the U.S. consulate, the to uh, you know create security so they can process the people over there. And then they start shooting at me. They're like, no, we don't know. I'm like, hey, I'm the United States ally. My name is Aziz. You can Google me. You can Google Chad Roboshow. You can mm-hmm. Google Dan Stenson. They are my bosses. I have worked with them. And these are my documents. I cannot show it to you because Taliban's are watching. Let me in. Come in. And then I will show it to you slowly. My wife, is. Uh, she did the appendix operation. Her uh, wound is, you know, infected. She's crying. She's in pain. As a courtesy, I ask you for help. Please yeah. help me. And then these young Marines, they're like, no, no, I don't know you. They fire at me. They're like, go. They're shooting. And I don't blame them. I mean, it was a chaos. They didn't know me, you know. <laughs> However, the wife is crying. The kids are crying. With a lot of disappointments, hopelessness, I turn back. I cannot even go back to my home. Because the bad guys that are coming to get me, they, they, are, they know my home. They know my address. I lost my cars, my everything over there. I only got a backpack and, you know, my kids and that's it. And then I, uh, there is this guy, my brother-in-law, uh, he had a taxi. I'm using his taxi. You know, we squeeze in and his little taxi, we sit. And then he takes us. We spend the nights in the parking lots. We spend the nights behind the airport. In one ditch, another ditch, another area, so the Taliban doesn't capture us. We cannot go to our relatives, because if I go to relatives by going to my relatives, I'm not only risking myself and my children, but I'm also risking my relatives right. over here. Because if the bad guys find out and they are behind us and their spies are everywhere and they are looking for us, so if they find us, they will shoot everyone over there. They will not care that who is Aziz, who is not. They will shoot everyone. So a time came after five days of efforts and trying and trying and trying. I finally decided, because I could not tolerate the, the, the you know, difficulties that my family and my, especially my wife and my kids were facing. I decided that I will send my wife and my daughters to a relative's house somewhere far in another province. And then uh, uh, what I will do is I will grab my guns and run away to the mountains and just join the NRF, the North Resistance Front. That was my final and last option. I had no other option. You know, I had an AK with me. I had my uh, Glock with me and I had still other guns and, you know, I had big cars in the house. I was planning to just go and grab all the guns and ammunition magazine, pack them behind my Tundra track and just, just head north and join the resistance because I had that. I told a couple of nights, Chad, that, hey, brother, it's not possible. If at least tell those guys that they are there for me to rescue me, tell them to come to the uh, point where the Marines are. So I will pass the Taliban, I will pass the zero units when I make it to the point where the Marines are. So from there, tell the Marines not to shoot at me and tell them to let me in. And that's exactly uh, Chad did through his guys that, you know, I was finally able to get in. Like it was the very last time, you know, my wife is crying. She told me, Aziz, I would rather die in the car in a parking lot, but not, you know, uh, in a crowd and then let the people to step on me. And right. we saw one of the lady that right before in front of my eyes, the Taliban shot her and she flipped over. She, she was on the ground and people were stepping on it. And then there was another child that was also shot in his uh, arm because there were rounds flying all over from all different parties. I don't know who did it, but, you know, the child was hit in the shoulder and crying and, you know, sitting over there and people were stepping on him and, you know, there was nobody to take care of him. It, it was it was really shameful. It was really, really heartbreaking. It was really, I, I don't even have words to describe that situation. Whoever saw the, the 
you know, the chaos that happened at that uh, Kabul airport on 15 August, they know exactly what I'm talking about. It's more about the feelings. It's not about the words or sentences. Well, Naziz, what you're describing is something that, you know, the, the, the U.S. news media did a decent job of covering what was going on over there, but then it became very apparent that this was going to look really, really bad for the Biden administration and stain the rest of his tenure in office. And so a lot of these stories that you described, a lot of the ones that Chad described, a lot of the ones that are in the book were not described by the United States mainstream media. And there's there's a reason for that. It's because it, it just looks horrific because they're trying to pretend as if the Taliban is this, oh, this is the new Taliban. This is the Taliban 2.0. They're reformed and and this is all good to go. And they're not going to just you know pull people out in the streets and chop their heads off and shoot them and, and rape women and, and take 13-year-old girls as sex slaves. No, this is the new Taliban. They wear suits and ties. And like, obviously, anybody that's experienced what you experienced is, you know, knows the, the absolute difference to that. So you and your family, Aziz, you get out, you know, God providentially carries you through this, this situation. Um, you get to America. Yeah, you're here. You're, you're in the great state of Texas. I'm just one state above you up in Oklahoma. Um, wow. you're working here, you know, your family's acclimating to life in Texas. I know your wife is a little scared of all the trees around in Texas. Cause y'all don't have a whole lot of trees in Afghanistan. So she thinks she's in the jungle. So hopefully she's taking care of business, but, uh, when you and your immediate in your immediate family left Afghanistan disease, you left behind, as far as I understand it, your parents, your two brothers, your sister, um, and there are you know cousins and you know uh, lots of lots of other folks as well. Um, so I guess take me through that because it's bittersweet because you're here with us, you're you're safe in America, but your family is not, and I don't know how much you know uh, interaction you're able to have with them. And I guess the other thing is, do you ever think Aziz that you will go back to Afghanistan? And I, and I don't mean necessarily to live there, but do you ever think that you will be able to step foot on, you know, the soil of your home country again? Uh, yeah, you pointed very good points and, uh, yeah, exactly. That's exactly all the truths. And, you know, that's something that, uh, that has not been covered and, I'm glad you pointed all those things out. Uh, it's it's very heartbreaking. So uh, we made it finally. We made it here with a lot of difficulties after spending nine months in limbo in Abu Dhabi. Then the USCIS didn't want to bring me in over there. They're like, hey, <laughs> we don't know you. I'm showing these documents. I show them the recommendation of uh, the recommendation letter from the General James Edward. Craft, uh, who was once the assistant of the the assistant commander of the Resolute Support in Afghanistan, that he's acknowledging all my duties and everything in a letter, and they, you know, the U.S. consulate told me in Abu Dhabi, they're like, yeah, that, that everybody has those. That's nothing. Mm. <laughs> so, however, uh, yeah, of course, I had to leave uh, and abandon my friends, my parents my brothers, my sisters, and, uh, you know, they had to leave Kabul and to uh, go totally into different provinces. They got, we all got separated. And as soon as the, the regime collapse happened, although I was separated from my brothers and from my sisters since 2007, in t- 2007, we had a Black Friday when the Taliban seized one of our tracks and they uh, tried calling me uh, George Bush's son and a puppet for U.S. and, you know, an infidel and stuff. And they told me that they know my house address, my car license plates, because the two drivers uh, under the torture and interrogation, they, uh, you know, they give up all my information to them. So uh, what I did in 2007, I told my brothers and my parents that, you know, I'm, uh, I have to move. And my father said the same thing. If you are going to continue doing the same thing, it's going to hurt all of us. You need to get separation from us. I said, okay, Mm -hmm. no problem. And I separated from them totally. I moved to another district in Kabul. And I was not going to their houses most of the time, like from 2007 up to now. And when we met, we only met through the WhatsApp calls or met in a restaurant and then let them go. And... uh, uh, still, there were some guys that uh, they were spying for the Taliban and they knew my brothers and my parents. 
And so they had to leave their own houses and go uh, live in exile in different uh, provinces. I could not bring them to the airport with me because they didn't work directly for the United States. They didn't have documents to prove uh, so I could bring him. And with that chaos at the airport, my father said, no, he's not going with that chaos because he's old and my mom is also old. And, you know, he said he would rather uh, flee into other provinces, far provinces. So they are still there. It's heartbreaking. They are all unemployment. Uh, they don't have jobs. They are starving. And uh, sometimes, uh, you know, I send them a little money from here so they can buy food and survive. And uh, the other thing about going back to Afghanistan is, uh, yeah, definitely. If I ever find an opportunity to go back and help the people, I will uh, do it proudly and uh, I will go and help the people. Same as I did in the past, especially if the United States troops ever plan uh, or the president ever plan to send the troops over there, I would love to go there and uh, restore my country from the evil. It's going to be a pride for me. It's incumbent at me that I have to uh, do it again and save the people because millions of people are marginalized, especially women. They are marginalized, they are moved to the edge, their freedoms are taken from them, the right for education is taken from them. Uh, you know, they are kept in darkness so they can, they can marry them, they can force marry them like four of them at the same time. If they don't have education, if they don't have the knowledge to fight about their rights that God has bestowed them, they will not be able to fight for their independence, for their rights. So that's the one of the Taliban's plan that they, you know, they closed all the private universities, public universities, the schools, the girls cannot go to school. Their intention is so that they can easily hand them and force marry them, like four of them at the same time. I hear every day the news that the Taliban commanders, they are, they all, most of them, like Sarajuddin Haqqani, his brother Anas Haqqani, the Kandahari Taliban, all the other Talibans that they are in the top management on the Taliban regime, they already got like their third, fourth wives. They married very young, uh, poor uh, girls, like nine-year-old, 12-year-old girls, they married them. And, you know, uh, they're sex enslaved for the rest of their life. It's, it's hard to even process that, Aziz, because, again, going back to the very beginning of this interview, when you described what it was like growing up in Afghanistan versus what it's like for people growing up here, and, again, every people group, every country, every body has their problems, we don't have that problem. And again, uh, almost immediately, I, I knew this in the middle of August of 2021, Aziz. I knew that by September, Americans would have moved on, right? You know, uh, Joe Biden would have, you know, pooped his pants in front of the Pope or, you know, Donald Trump would have said something in the news media or their favorite team got the player they wanted or lost the player that they, they, they really needed to stay healthy and that we were just going to move on. And that was the shocking thing for me is that like, I, I was really hoping that I was going to be wrong, but people have just, it's too icky. It's too depraved. Well, I was, I was debating whether or not I was going to do this because we're wrapping this interview to a close, but, but you used a word in your last answer, Aziz, and it was evil. Okay. Yes. People don't understand evil, really, in America. We, we really don't get it. I mean, you know, we just had a, a quadruple murder here in the last couple of months in Idaho where, you know, there was so much blood at the crime scene that, you know, the forensic team couldn't even, like, get the get their stuff together. They couldn't even do it. Like, that's evil. and We, we recognize that that's evil. But the reason why that's been making headlines every day for weeks is because that doesn't happen every day here in the United States of America, right? We're so yeah. unbelievably lucky and we're so ignorant to realize that other people aren't as lucky. So I do want to ask you, I, I want to know, and I want you to tell our audience, what are some of the things that you saw, that you witnessed, that that your your teams witnessed in Afghanistan that the Taliban did that didn't make the news, 
the, the horrific things, because we've described a lot in this podcast, but I want to, I really want to drive this point home. And this isn't some sort of, you know, masochistic thing that I just want to hear it because it gets me off. No, like I, the, our audience needs to know exactly who the Taliban are and what they're doing to people. Taliban are uh, a bunch of uh, barbaric, ignorant, uneducated people that are raised in the Pakistani madrasas in the darkness. And uh, the movies have been shown to them that, uh, you know, the rest of the world has been introduced to them as an infidel. Like anybody who shaves their beard is an infidel to the Taliban. That's what they are taught in the Pakistani madrasas since their childhood. They are taught that uh, all the rest of the world is uh, sinners. They are doing adultery. Like, for example, uh, if uh, I, I come to your house and your wife give me a hug and welcome me to your house, And they think that as a, a you know, a very bad and sinner action. They said that the men there should not touch the women because uh, that's how they are trained, their, their mentality, their ideology. Taliban are those people that in the last two decades, they did not have mercy on the children. I remember those poor girls, those little girls, uh, eight-year-old girls that they were coming with their family from Kandahar to Kabul on the highway of Helmand. They stopped them, brought them down from the bus, and they cut the throat of those little girls with the string that people use it for sewing the shoe. They cut the throat of the journalists just for broadcasting the truth and the realities about the Taliban. They slaughtered thousands and hundreds thousands of people in Afghanistan, Americans, Europeans, uh, most of the time Afghans. They did not even have mercy on their own people that they call that Afghans are our people. They say that Afghans, most Afghans are Muslims and they also claim to be Muslims, but Unfortunately, they did not even have mercy on their own Muslims. So uh, there is no good or bad Taliban. Taliban are a terrorist group. They have a you, you know, very terroristic mentality. And doesn't matter how much uh, you uh, have mercy on them or respect them, they will do their thing. They still do. They, that's how they are trained. Uh, from the childhood, they do not have enough education even about the Islam that they are claiming. Even about the, their own Islam, they do not have educations. Like in Islam, uh, killing of the innocent people is totally forbidden. I have studied the Quran many times just to know what's in there. But, uh, you know, they are not even obeying their own Islamic rules. It, they are not even Muslims. They are just a bunch of barbaric, terrorist, uh, evils that um, the world, uh, it's a, a actually a moral obligation, obligation for the whole world in eliminating them. Otherwise, this is a virus like a coronavirus. It's spreading, it's growing, and it will affect everyone in the, on this planet Earth. Right now, as far as I'm talking to my friends in Afghanistan, they are growing a lot of Um, bad guys like for suicidal training, like they have a battalion that with the leftovers of the American guns, they are training suicidal uh, people to, in the future, they want to use them against the region or, you know, the world. And uh, every day they are growing Uzbeks, that uh, Chinese Uyghurs are coming over there, the uh, Uzbek radical Muslims are coming over there, the Turk uh, radical groups are going over there and covering under their big uh, umbrella or the context of Taliban in Afghanistan. And, um, you know, Jaish Muhammad, Lashkar Taiba, and uh, there are so many other terroristic groups that they are involved in many different touristic attacks in the region, like on Indian hotels, like in the borders of uh, Uzbekistan or Tajikistan and inside Afghanistan and in many parts of the world. And it's really, really dangerous 
I hope that the superpowers, especially the United States, should take an immediate action against these uh, evil. Otherwise, it's going to affect uh, everyone on this planet and it will be very difficult uh, to eliminate them uh, if we let them to grow more and more. I completely agree with you. Obviously, anybody that's paying attention or has paid attention to this for any length of time agrees with you because doing this, putting our hands over our eyes and covering our ears, that's not going to take care of the evil. We have to push back against darkness and we have to eliminate evil. That is the mandate that God has given us. But Aziz, I really appreciate all the time that you've given us today. I really appreciate all the detail that you got into. And again, you know, that we barely scratched the surface on the stuff that is in the book, Saving Aziz. Obviously, you played a tremendous hand in that book getting to us. But as for now, that's all for me. Is there Anything else you want to get off your chest? Oh, uh, no, that's it. Thank you very much. Really nice talking to you. Have a great one. Tasha Kaur. Yeah, yeah I, I appreciate that. Well, Aziz, as a Did I say it right? Because I didn't yeah. want to accidentally say, yeah, okay. Perfect. Okay. See, I'm doing my best uh, with the little bit that I know. You'll have to teach me some more when we actually meet in person or in person. But Azazila Azuz. Or sorry, I'm messing up my own outro here because I like I'm speaking a different language for like four seconds. Azazula Aziz, thank you for coming on Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. You're welcome. You're welcome. Have a good one. Bye-bye. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my time with Aziz. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So here are the links I've got for you today. I've got a link to the book, Saving Aziz, so you guys can go and pick that up. I highly suggest you do so. And then also I've got links to the Save Our Allies website and the Mighty Oaks Foundation website. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Cutting the Tides, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. <laughs>